This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanen, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 101 of Fearless Rebel Radio, and I am interviewing Dr. Kristen Neff, author of one of my favorite books, Self-Compassion, about, you guessed it, self-compassion. We talk about what it means to give ourselves compassion, how to differentiate between self-compassion and self-indulgence, and tactics you can use in moments of need. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this show at summerinanen.com forward slash 101. I want to tell you a little story before we start. This is just a behind the scenes of what happened in the recording of this episode. So Kristen Neff is someone that I've really admired and whose work has inspired my own personal development and the way that I work with clients for a long time. And when I initially asked if she would come on the show, she wrote me back and said, no, I don't have time. And I always strive to just ask. I'm like, well, what's the harm in asking? Like the, if, if, if people aren't saying no to me, then I'm not asking enough people. That's my take on the situation when I reach out to have people come on the show. And then a month later, she actually wrote me back and she said, I have time in my calendar in August. Would you like to record the interview? And I was pleasantly surprised. And so that was really awesome. So lesson there is don't be afraid of rejection and actually seek out no's because if you're not getting any no no's in your, whether it's your career or your professional development or just the asks that you have in your life, then it probably means you're not aiming high enough. Okay, the more you know. Second piece of this story is, so I'm pretty excited to interview her because she's someone that I've really looked up to. <laughs> we start the recording, we're two minutes in, and I realize that the recorder is not working. And so I have to stop her and say, hang on, I need to figure this out. And uh, do you mind just waiting for a couple of minutes? And she was really cool about it. And she was patient. And I had to install an update. And thankfully, I was able to fix it within a few minutes. And I was offering myself self compassion and uh, just recognizing that all podcasters go through this thing and that everything doesn't need to be perfect. And it's okay. And uh, was able to get through it just fine. <laughs> no, <laughs> no emotional injuries there. It was all good. But as a result, the interview is a little shorter than I would have liked because uh, she was she had a, a specific block of time that she was available for, and I we ate into it with the technical difficulties at the start. But that being said, there is still so much value in this episode, and I think you're going to love it. Before we begin, I just want to give a shout out to. Alora Leanne, who left this great review for the show. Thank you. Such a breath of fresh air and wonderful. I hope you keep these coming. If you'd like to leave a review, and I would love it if you did, you can head to iTunes, search for Fearless Rebel Radio, click ratings and reviews, then click to leave a review or give it a rating and become a subscriber too. That's another really great way that you can support the success of this show and help to end diet culture. Second, if you haven't already done so, go to summerinandin.com forward slash freebies to get the free 10-day body confidence makeover with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. All right, let's get started with the show. 
Dr. Kristen Neff is an associate professor in human development at the University of Texas in Austin, a pioneer who first established self-compassion as a field of study many years ago. Dr. Neff gives lectures on self-compassion internationally and conducts workshops for those who want to learn more about developing self-compassion. She is the author of the incredible book, Self-Compassion. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kristen Neff. Thank you so much for being here today. Awesome. I'm happy to be here. Good. All right. So I would love for you to tell everyone before we get started, just what inspired you to become a researcher of self-compassion? Like what got you into this work? Uh, well, it really, for me, started as a personal journey. It was 1997. I was finishing up my PhD at UC Berkeley. Uh, and basically, my life was a mess. I was under a lot of stress. And so I thought I'd learn how to meditate because I had heard that meditation was good for stress. And to my surprise, the woman leading the meditation group talked a lot about the importance of self-compassion, of how it's really important that we have, you know, not just compassion for others, but also for ourselves, that we're, you know, kind, supportive, loving toward ourselves. And um, <laughs> believe it or not, it was a bit of a light bulb moment for me because I'd never really considered that we could treat ourselves with the same kindness and support that we showed to others. So I started practicing self-compassion and saw it made a huge difference in my own personal life almost immediately. So then when I got to um, UT Austin uh, and I was a researcher, I thought, well, you know, I know it works. People have written about it's working. Certainly people in therapy had talked about the idea generally, but no one had really researched it from an academic perspective. So I gave it a a try and now it's kind of taken off. Yes, you've had a huge impact on on the world, I would say, with with your work. I think when I told everyone in my community that I was going to be interviewing you, they were pretty they were pretty excited. Can you just tell us what you, you mentioned self-compassion is being kind and supportive and loving. And I know in your book you talk about the three components of self-compassion. Can you just talk a little bit about those for people who perhaps haven't read your book or who are unfamiliar with the concept? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when I decided I wanted to research self-compassion, I knew I had to kind of come up with a clear definition of what it was so then I could create a scale to measure it and start to research it. And so I was actually a little worried that if it was just thought of as being kind to yourself or accepting yourself, it'd be kind of hard to distinguish self-compassion just from you know, maybe just self-love or maybe self-pity even, something like that. And we all know that self-pity is not a great thing. So I had to really think about, well, what is it that makes it self-compassion as opposed to something like self-pity? So um, one thing I realized, and this partly comes from the fact that I learned about self-compassion in a meditation course, is I realized self-compassion required mindfulness, Right. So mindfulness has gotten a lot more research and a lot more attention in the last decade or so. Um, mindfulness is basically being aware of what's happening while it's happening with a kind of accepting stance as opposed to pushing away those things we don't like. And I realized that in order for it to be self-compassion, we had to be mindful of our negative feelings, whether they were feelings of guilt or failure or inadequacy. The, the first step to having self-compassion required that we actually turn toward and acknowledge, this is really hard right now, or I feel like a failure right now. We had to do it in kind of a balanced way. Mindfulness has 
the equanimity built into it. So instead of like running away with, oh my God, this is the worst thing that ever happened, mm-hmm. a process we call over-identification, it just means we're willing to, you know, kind of step outside of ourselves and look at what's happening, which is um, that we're suffering. So that, that's really in some ways the first thing that has to happen in temporal sequence to have self-compassion. And then, of course, we need to respond with kindness as opposed to harsh self-judgment, which is, you know, the more typical pattern, especially if we notice something about ourselves we don't like. But um, I I also realized that what was really important to distinguish self-compassion, especially from self-pity, is a sense of common humanity, right? So self-pity is poor me, woe is me. It's kind of a very self-focused state. The word compassion actually means to suffer with. Calm means with and passion means suffer. And certainly from the more um, Buddhist tradition, which is where I come from, the idea of interconnectedness, interbeing, is really deeply interwoven into the idea of compassion. That we have compassion for others because we're all human beings, you know, operating under a set of very complicated causes and conditions, doing the best we can. And so I realized that to have self-compassion, you had to frame your experience of failure or inadequacy in light of the shared human experience. In other words, it's not for me, it's just realizing, hey, life is difficult for everyone, everyone's imperfect, everyone fails. This is something we all go through. In fact, what often happens psychologically when we fail or something really difficult happens is kind of on an irrational level, we think this is not supposed to be happening. You know, something has gone wrong. As if somehow it's abnormal to fail or not to be perfect. Now, we know logically that's not the case, but often emotionally we we react that way. Like, you know, something's wrong with me for failing or something's wrong with the world because I got that diagnosis from the doctor when in fact as we know this is this is part of the human experience so that's the third component of self-compassion actually very very important that we feel kind of connected to our fellow human beings in our imperfection as opposed to feeling isolated Mm, that's so good and you know on that like what's the relationship between internalized oppression and self-compassion like in other words how does internalized oppression impact the way that we offer ourselves compassion and especially around that common humanity piece. So by internalized oppression, are, are you referring to self-criticism or? Yeah. So, so, th- so, so obviously like the way that we are critical to ourselves and that being a, you know, a cultural influence and, and the way that, especially as, as women, you know, we have been, you know, told that we're not good enough and to always kind of be, striving to have it all together. And so therefore, a lot of our self-criticism is born out of the systemic oppression. The systemic, in addition to family factors. Yes. You know, right. So we've actually had research showing that parental criticism leads to lower self-compassion. I'm not aware of any research, quite interesting, looking at kind of societal oppression or societal messages, although, of course, they're going to be internalized as well. But I have to say, I think that these contribute, definitely, societal oppression, parental criticism. But I think it actually goes deeper than that. I think the reason we criticize ourselves is also just because when we feel threatened by something, we immediately go into threat defense mode. We go into fight, flight, or freeze. Right? This is our oldest and most easily triggered part of the nervous system. We've had it since reptile days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is the system evolved to protect ourselves against physical threats, physical dangers, 
These days, the system is triggered just as easily by threats to our self-concept. So what happens when we fail or make a mistake or we look in the mirror and we don't like what we see, we feel threatened. And what we do when we feel threatened is we attack the problem. Unfortunately, the problem is our, ourselves. So we either go into fight mode, we like fight and beat ourselves up thinking that somehow we're going to, you know, get ourselves into shape so we'll be safe or else we um, kind of flee. That's, that's the feeling of, you know, I'm disconnected from everyone. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm separate. And that's, that, that's what happens with the isolation. Or also freeze actually looks like rumination when we get stuck in our thoughts and we can't let go as if maybe, you know, the 57th time I think about the issue is going to go away, right? So I think part of the reason we tend to criticize ourselves is just because we feel threatened. And I think that's also why we criticize ourselves more than others, because, you know, you aren't threatened by your best friends and adequacy or failure. You, you, you have more resources available to support your friend where we are threatened. Um, so that combined with the internalized messages of our family plus society really kind of means the odds are stacked against us. <laughs> and I think that's why self-compassion isn't more common. Having said that, it's surprisingly easy to learn how to be self-compassionate. I've been really surprised in my work how readily people can learn the skill because, you know, most people are really pretty experienced in being a good supportive friend to others. You know, one of the earliest developmental tasks that we achieve is friendship skills, knowing how to support other people, knowing how to modulate your tone of voice when someone's upset, you know, how to use that kind of oh, soft tone and make sounds of compassion and we know the right thing to say. So, Really, it's not that difficult to be self-compassionate. We just need to treat ourselves like a friend, almost treat ourselves like we would treat someone else, as opposed to when we're just coming from our own self-perspective, then we just usually freak out and feel threatened. Right. And that's a question that came up. I, I posed this out to my audience. I said, what, you know, what questions do you have on self-compassion or what have you struggled with? And I think something that came up over and over was, I can be compassionate with everyone else but myself. And so, you know, what's your advice? Like how, how do you start to apply it back to yourself in a way that's going to make that more of a default way of thinking in the future? Right. I mean, so does it ever become default? It certainly becomes more habitual. I think we're never going to get rid of that self-critical voice because it's, you know, it's tapped into our sympathetic nervous system, right? This is just part of who we are. It's part of our physiology. But we don't have to take that voice so seriously. And in fact, I think what we find in our workshops is the more we kind of understand how the self-critical voice is actually trying to keep us safe, mm-hmm. or we can like listen to it and say, yeah, well, thanks for trying to warn me of danger. And then you can let in this more friendly, supportive voice, right? And so, I mean, so that's part of the shift is, first of all, kind of honoring the inner critic and its attempt to keep you safe and then making room for this more supportive voice. Um, But really, a lot of what's involved is helping free up some of the blockages to self-compassion. And there are both, you know, cultural blocks, barriers to self-compassion. And also a lot of people feel that, you know, it's selfish to have self-compassion or they aren't worthy of it. And they actually don't give themselves permission to be kind to themselves. So once those barriers are overcome, it's like I say, it's actually fairly easy to speak to yourself like a a good friend. It takes a little habit, 
you know, because we're so good at it with others. And I have to say women are more compassionate others than men are and a little less self-compassionate. And that's, I think that's just our social socialization, really, you know, always being other focused and helping others and because self-sacrificing. But the good news is, is women really have the skills of how to be self-compassionate because they're so skilled in being compassionate to others. So, you know, I find women actually, they learn the skill quite easily once they give themselves permission and once they realize it's not going to make them weak or selfish or narcissistic or undermine their motivation, all these fears we have about being self-compassionate. Yeah. And what I'm hearing is you really have to be intentional with it is that it's it's something that takes pra- a pra- like it's like a muscle it's a it's a practice it's a muscle, right it's like a muscle so you just have to remember i mean i would say now when something bad happens for me you know it, it's i might have a flash moment of my inner critic but usually i'm i'm pretty I go pretty easily into self-support mode because I've seen so often how effective it is. And uh, it's like I say, other people can do it too. It really isn't rocket science. You know, one of the things that I think helps and one of the reasons I think this helps for women especially is that I really deepened my self-compassion practice working with my son Rowan, who's autistic, and seeing how me as a, as a caregiver, being self-compassionate really helped my ability to care for Rowan, you know, really just made me see very clearly that self-compassion is not at all selfish. You know, women especially are taught that they should focus on meeting others' needs. But if you think about it, so, so we impact each other's moves. We all have mirror neurons, which means I pick up on what you're feeling and you pick up on what I'm feeling. And if we're walking around in a state of constant self-criticism and I'm not good enough and frustration, well, everyone we come in contact with feels that frustration and like they kind of pick it up through their mirror neurons. And I noticed that with Rollin when I would get frustrated because he was throwing a tantrum or, you know, it was, it was very, very challenging. It would just ramp him up. Right. If I got frustrated at him throwing the tantrum, he would just throw a tantrum that much stronger. When I remember to be self-compassionate, and I, I really did make this a practice, I would say, you know, God, it, it's so hard to be here right now. You know, it's really difficult. It's challenging for me. It, it's hard to parent an autistic child. It's hard to be in, in public with everyone looking at us because my five-year-old kid is tantruming, you know. And I would just, I would put my hand on my heart and I would soothe and comfort myself. Uh, and that did two things. One, he would calm down, right? So he was basically picking up on my more peaceful state of mind and, and getting some of the benefits directly. But then also, of course, it just gave me more emotional resources to focus on him. And you know, after I met my own needs, I could meet his needs and, and figure out, you know, what, what the best action to take was. And so I, I think that is another reason why I'm such a self-compassion advocate, because I see how it just not only helps yourself, it really helps everyone you come into contact with. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And just hearing you model your own self-compassion there, you know, it kind of brought up something I wanted to talk to you about, which was compassion isn't, isn't about, you know, eliminating negative with positive. Like you weren't trying to affirm anything positive in that situation. And what I mean by that was like, like just kind of saying, I don't know, you're, you're the best mother or anything like that. You were just, you're giving yourself understanding in for the situation and making space for the feelings that you were having. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that? 
Well, again, that's why mindfulness is so core to self-compassion, because mindfulness is all about accepting and opening to what is, as opposed to suppressing it or fighting it, resisting it, trying to make it go away. Because sadly, we just know that doesn't work. I mean, if it did, if positive thinking worked and you could just like wish your problems away, I'd say go for it. Right. <laughs> the problem is absolutely doesn't work what we know what we resist persists right if we try to fight a negative feeling it just emerges stronger in our awareness you know if you if you can't fall asleep at night and you resist not falling asleep you might develop insomnia right so the, really the only way through is by accepting that difficult or negative emotions are here but what really really helps in addition to accepting it is the sense of kindness and support and care and like, you know, I'm here with you as you go through this and I got your back and what can I do to help? Just you, It's almost like in many ways, self-compassion is reparenting yourself, right? Maybe if you were lucky enough to have a very compassionate parent when you were sick with the flu or something happens, you know, they didn't immediately try to fix you. They just were there for you and they comforted you and they nurtured you, but they also like tried to do whatever they could, like take you to the doctor or give you medicine to help you heal faster. Not 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 because there was anything wrong with you, but just because they cared about you. And that's really the same thing we're doing with self-compassion. Mm-hmm. We accept the difficult feelings and we make mistakes and, you know, we have challenges, the things we don't like about ourselves. And we're just there for ourselves. And but but we do also try to heal. You know, a lot of people are afraid that self-compassion means you lose your motivation, but that's not at all the case. Just like a compassionate parent wants to help their child reach their best. It doesn't say, you know, oh yeah, scoop school, eat all the ice cream you want. You know, that's not compassionate. If a a compassionate parent who really loves their child will try to help them reach their full potential. And that's exactly the same thing with us. Um, When we're self-compassionate, we help motivate ourselves, but we motivate ourselves because we care, not because we're somehow inadequate as we are, we're afraid of failing. Yeah, I want to, um, I definitely, I want to loop back around to that point a little further, because that question came up a lot just around differentiating between self-compassion and self-indulgence. But what I think would be a good topic to speak to before that is the relationship between self-compassion and self-care. So are they linked? And if so, how? Yeah, so self-care, I mean, if you're self-compassionate, you will engage in in self-care, right? So if you think of self-care as behaviors you can engage in to give yourself what you need. So, you know, exercise and rest and going to the doctor and eating well. And in fact, research shows that self-compassion is linked to self-care. So it's not self-indulgence. Self-indulgence isn't self-care. Self-indulgence means short-term pleasure at the expense of long-term harm. And so self-compassionate people don't do that because they don't want to harm themselves. So we do engage in more self-care, but it really goes beyond self-care. Like, you know, for caregivers, for instance, you know, when I talk to other autism moms and stuff, you know, people tell you to do self-care and yeah, that's all very well and good if you have the time and the money. And more than that, self-care only helps you off the job. You know, if you're working with, if you're with your tangerine child or maybe you're a therapist and you're working with a patient who just told you some bombshell of a story, you can't say, you know, I'm really feeling a bit upset. I'm going to go get a massage. See you later. Right. Right. So what self-compassion does is it actually helps you in the moment. Self-compassion allows you to say, wow, this is so hard for me right now. You know, I, I need compassion for how overwhelmed or how stressed I'm feeling right now, right here in the moment. 
So it doesn't, you know, it, it includes external behaviors of self-care, but it really primarily focuses on emotionally caring for ourselves in the moment. And that's really what gives it its huge power to be able to cope with stressful situations. You know, a, a lot of people worry that self-compassion is weak. I can tell you, <laughs> we did a study with veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and those veterans who were more self-compassionate were less likely to develop a post-traumatic stress syndrome syndrome a year later than those who are mean to themselves. And it makes total sense. You know, if you're in a difficult situation and you're an inner enemy, always cutting yourself down, you know, saying you this and you that and you did that wrong and I'm ashamed of you versus being an inner ally. You know, I'm here for you. It's okay. What can I do to help? I accept you. Whatever happens, that kind of friendly internal support is going to make you much stronger and more able to cope with them difficult situations. And there's a ton of research to support that. Mm -hmm. That's really good. And so in situations where you're feeling guilt, because I think sometimes when we are offering ourselves compassionate care, whether that's, okay, I just need a moment for myself here, or I'm going to leave these dishes in the sink because... I just need to recharge myself. How do how can we apply self-compassion to work with the guilt that can come up in situations like that? Yeah. So, I mean, for, I usually think like not doing the dishes in the moment isn't guilt. I usually think more guilt is when you hurt someone else, right? When you hurt their feelings or okay. done something you really... So maybe, maybe, maybe the first step is really to like, let's define what, what guilt is because I... But I think a lot of people do, like they feel guilty taking taking any kind of time for themselves or not like upholding kind of, you know, these, like, these standards that we're supposed to yeah. be upholding. So, so, so in the psychological literature, guilt is more defined as what happens when you hurt someone else. Okay. And the, the research shows that self-compassion is linked to more guilt and less shame. So guilt is, I did something wrong. I'm so sorry. What can I do to repair the situation? And self-compassion increases guilt because it's safe to own up and, and be able to let in the feelings of hurting someone and then, uh, you know, do what you can to help the situation. But shame is I am bad. You know, I'm a bad person. And I suspect what's going on when, when things like, you know, I'm not doing the dishes or I'm, I'm not focusing enough on other people is actually more shame than guilt. What's happening is we think if I, le if I leave the dishes undone, that means I'm a terrible mother or a terrible person. It's not really about I've harmed anyone. It's just about not living up to societal standards of what we think a good person is. And that's actually uh, more linked to shame. And so, so what we know with self-compassion is that First of all, it really frees you from that kind of obsessive concern with what other people think of you. So, you know, people are more self-compassionate. They're less focused on what other people think or that they're less constantly comparing themselves to others. You know, am I as attractive as she is or as good of a mother or as successful as he is or whatever it is? It allows people to actually be more authentic. Because again, when you really care about yourself and you want to be happy, you're going to be more likely to, to do things that are authentic for you as opposed to, you know, just subordinate your needs to the wants of other people. Mm -hmm. That's really good. I'm going to start calling people when they're talking about guilt around those things and just really, you know, asking, okay, who got hurt here by you not yeah. doing that? <laughs> um, but also, I think it's about acknowledging that shame too. 
Yeah, because there, there can be shame there, right? So when we're evaluating ourselves based on our cleanliness or, you know, what, you know, what we do or what car we drive or something like that, you're really dealing more in the realm of shame. Am I a good enough person? And self-compassion is kind of orthogonal to self-esteem. I mean, they're related, right? If you have more, if you're kind to yourself as opposed to judging yourself all the time, you're going to have higher self-esteem. The self-esteem asks the question, am I good enough? And self-compassion doesn't ask that question. You know, self-compassion just is about accepting yourself unconditionally. So where self-esteem deserts you when you fail or, you know, get rejected, that's precisely when self-compassion steps in to say, hey, I accept you anyway. Yeah, you failed. That's okay. I'm still here for you. I still accept you. You know, how can I help? So it's actually the sense of self-worth, and we know this from research, that's linked to self-compassion. It's much more stable because it's, it's, it's more unconditional, whereas ideas of self-esteem and am I a good good enough mother or parent or housekeeper, whatever it is you're judging yourself for, those feelings are much more contingent on a lot of external standards. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's such a good differentiation. I'm glad that I'm glad that you spoke to that because that was one of the things that I was going to ask you about as well. And so on that, on that note, just I know coming back to self-compassion and, and self-indulgence. So for a lot of the people I work with, they're recovering from a disordered relationship with food or fitness. And so they're, you know, being kinder to themselves by laying off of punitive behaviors. However, for some people, it then becomes a struggle to distinguish between when it would be in their best interest to perhaps do something like, you know, push yourself to incorporate some movement into your day from a caring perspective. And so, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, so really, I mean, the answer to what particular behavior counts as self-indulgence or self-care or is balanced, in a way, it's, you know, I think it's that's something everyone has to decide for themselves. It depends on where they're at. But certainly self-compassion is always interested in what is best for me, what's healthiest for me. So, you know, sometimes eating that tub of Ben and Jerry's ice cream is not healthy for you. On the other hand, maybe sometimes having a bowl as a celebration is healthy and, and being really strict with food is not healthy. So it, it just, you know, people need to figure out for themselves what's in their best interests. I th and I think maybe with help of people like you or nutritionists and people who can try to give them some guidance. But certainly the energy of self-compassion is always about not causing oneself harm and giving oneself uh, health and well-being. And sometimes that actually means doing things kind of unpleasant, like, you know, exercising. You know, some people are lucky enough to love exercising. I'm not particularly fond of it, but I do it because it's good for me, you know. So it, it's not about pleasure versus pain. It's about health versus, you know, not being healthy. And that's really the dimension on which self-compassion operates. Yeah, and I think it gets a little bit tricky when, you know, it, societally, we've really been conditioned to think about health as as purely physical versus, you know, the whole gamut and, and looking at it from the holistic perspective and incorporating, you know, our, our, our mental health. And so understanding that sometimes we honor our mental health in order to be healthier overall. Absolutely, right? So let's say you've got the perfect worked out ripped body, but if you're miserable, I mean, what kind of health is that? Right? <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's all about balance. And, and again, that kind of coming back to it, that's 
I think why um, self-compassion has to incorporate mindfulness. If you think of mindfulness as kind of a balanced, equanimous way of being, you know, it sees things clearly. It doesn't exaggerate, but it also looks at things. It doesn't, you know, hide things or sweep things into the table. And just really saying, well, what is best for me in this moment? And, and, and often what needs to happen in order to decide that is you kind of have to step outside yourself. In fact, one of the reasons I think self-compassion is so beneficial is we're using, we're relating to ourselves the way we normally relate to other people. So instead of just being lost and I am this and this is happening to me, we get our, our perspective gets very narrow and we lose perspective by stepping outside yourself and treating yourself like you treat a friend, you can kind of see your own situation with a larger perspective as well. And I think it, instead of just saying, I want that bowl of ice cream, you can step outside of yourself and say, well, what's the best thing right now? You know, so, uh, you know, they're finding more and more research that like speaking to yourself in the third person is actually really healthy and calms down amygdala reactivity, which is what happens when we're just scared and going to fight, flight or freeze. Mm -hmm. So uh, would you say that like, it's not, it's not about adding tough love into the equation. It's really about getting in touch and asking yourself that question that you said is what's best for me in this moment. Yeah. And who knows, maybe sometimes it does require, instead of tough love, I like the term fierce compassion. You know, sometimes compassion says, no, you know, no, that's not okay that you're doing that to me, or it's not okay that I'm doing that to myself. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you got out of a relationship because you realized it was bad for you and every fiber of your being wants to start it up, you know, self-compassion may say, no, it's not good for you. And it may, ha may have to be really firm. But again, that firmness is coming from care, not from somehow not being good enough or other motivations or, or to punish or anything like that. Right. But yes, compassion actually, and we think that's one of the things people get confused about. They always think that self-compassion is like, you know, pliant and weak and moldable and bendable. And actually, sometimes self-compassion is a firm, straight up, no. <laughs> we call that the, the, the yin and yang of self-compassion. You know, there's like the soft, comforting, soothing side, but there's also the supporting, the, the protecting side. If you really have self-compassion, you will protect yourself from harm, self-harm or harm from others. So it's a real source of strength. Yeah, I think that that's that's such an important differentiation and to talk about those two sides because I I don't think I, you know, I think most people think about it as that that very like gentle, forgiving, soft side, which is I think what a lot of us need, but at the same time like you're saying it has to it has to be balanced there as well. Yeah, it has to be balanced and integrated. You know, in a way you might think of self-compassion as a really good integration of both the masculine and feminine principles. But it's a shame because, for instance, our self-compassion workshops, it's primarily women because I think men think of it as, oh, that's the girl thing or feminine thing. It's for soft, you know, it's soft. It's funny, though, some of the groups that really love it are people like veterans and firefighters, you know, like these are people who they don't have to question their own masculinity. You know, they, they're, they're not, they're comfortable with that. They're suffering and they realize how helpful it is. So it, yes. it's kind of yes. ironic that um, the people who, who are kind of, what shall I say, who really know themselves realize that this is a strength and not a weakness. Yeah, I think it would go a long ways towards helping the harmful, toxic masculinity that happens in our society. Yeah, absolutely. 
So uh, one of the last things I want to make sure we have to, I have time to ask you is some exercises people can do in moments where they've hit rock bottom. So I think that's one of the hardest times to offer ourselves compassion is when we just feel like things are at a real low. And so what do you suggest or what are some things that people can do in these moments? Well, probably the best place for any listener to start is to go to my website, which is selfcompassion.org. So I've got, I have a lot of practices on there. I've got written exercises. I've got little MP3s of practices or, or guided meditations if you're into that. But the basic principle is what you're doing when you're giving yourself compassion is, again, you're treating yourself like a good friend. So in terms of knowing um, how to speak to yourself, a very easy litmus test is what would I say to a close friend in this situation? What tone of voice would I use? We know tone of voice is a huge conveyor of compassion, right? So what tone of voice would I say? What kind of words would I say? I mean, if you talk to your friends the way you talk to yourself, you probably wouldn't have any friends. So you kind of have this internal gauge. You know what to say if you think about what you would say to a friend. So that's one tip. And then the other tip is I'm actually, believe it or not, I'm using touch, physical touch. Because we're mammals, all mammals have this attachment caregiving system, which basically what happens is when we're in the presence of warmth or gentle touch or soothing vocalizations, we feel safe. And this this system developed because mammalian young are born very mature and, you know, they had to be something that would keep the infant and mother together so that little kid doesn't get eaten up by predators. So, you know, think of a cat with her kittens purring and cuddling and the sounds they make and they're all cuddled up together. All mammals have this response. So although it feels kind of strange at first, believe it or not, some sort of warm touch like putting your hand on your heart or your stomach or your face or or your arms, even if your your brain can't go to the, you know, to say self-compassionate things because it's just too much, it's, it's too full of the story of how horrible you are, uh, sometimes you can actually access a more compassionate state simply by putting your hands on your heart or holding your own, holding your own hand. Um, it's really, I really recommend the technique in addition to the kind language because, again, it kind of, and then you're approaching it from all these different angles, and it's surprisingly effective. But, you know, it, it, it is touchy-feely, but just remember that it's touchy-feely for scientific reasons, so you don't have to be embarrassed about it. <laughs> so That's great. I, I actually am a, a personal user of the hand-on-the-heart method. It's something I use myself and I, and I use with clients too. And it's amazing how much of a difference it makes And it. And it can just be just even touching it without, without the words, you can feel yourself soften in a lot of circumstances. And I just have to add in quickly, just something to be aware of is sometimes, you know, depending on one's history, People put their hands on their heart and it doesn't feel so good. So people should be aware when they start practicing self-compassion. Sometimes what occurs is what we call backdraft. And backdraft is a firefighting term, which, which refers to, you know, when firemen go to a burning house, they fling open the doors, the fresh air rushes in, and the flames rush out. And actually, something similar can happen when we start practicing self-compassion, you know, especially people with a trauma history, but, but not even just, you know, a lot of people, they've learned to close their hearts for the whole life to make themselves feel safe and protected. Right. And so right. it can be kind of scary to open the doors of your heart. So you put your 
your hands on your heart, and you know, you open the doors of your heart, and the love rushes in, and the old fear, the old pain rushes out. So just to say um, that it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It's actually a very common reaction. That's what we've got a term for it. We have ways of working with it. It actually is a good sign. It means the healing has begun. But if that if you do have that experience, all it means is you might need to go a little more slowly. In fact, what firemen do is they don't they don't fling open the doors of the building, but they go around and they poke little holes in it so the air can get in more slowly. So the same thing with ourselves. We can just, you know, be a little slow as we go about it. Um, maybe if putting your hand on your heart doesn't feel good, you can pet your cat or maybe just gently squeeze a finger or something a little lighter so you don't get overwhelmed, but you're still building the habit of saying, what do I need right now? And then trying to give it to yourself. That's so helpful. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because that was another question that came up. But I know that you're short on time here. And so and we need to wrap it up. But I want to thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been it's been an honor. Like I said, you you know, you changed my life, you changed the way I work with clients. I'm always recommending your website and your book and and everything that you do. So again, just want to express how grateful I am that you took the time to come on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. All right. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Kristen. You're welcome. Rock on. All right. So much good stuff there. As a reminder, Kristen has a ton of free resources on her website at selfcompassion.org. I'm going to link to everything in the show notes. And if you haven't read Self-Compassion, make sure you go out and do that right away. So I will link to that in the show notes as well. And you can find those at summerinandin.com forward slash 101. Thank you so much for listening today. I will see you next time. Rock on. 